Psalm 46. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read the entire psalm, and then we'll begin. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Selah. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he has made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. This psalm divides itself very nicely into three stanzas, each with a statement about God, each with a statement about his people, and each with a statement about his enemies. I'm going to follow those main divisions tonight. When the heathen rage and foam out their hatred for God and for his people, God is their refuge, and they are, verses 1 through 3, fearless. Verses 4 through 7, joyful. And verses 8 through 11, peaceful. With each sea law of this psalm, we are brought nearer to God and further away from the tumult of the ungodly. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, will not we fear? Generally speaking, we fear only that which we cannot control. The most fearful people you will meet with in life are usually also the most controlling. The most insecure are those that try to exert the most control over others. Fear is at the root of this. Fear. The funny thing about it is that none of us can really control much of anything in our lives. If we were really to stop and consider it, a moment's thought would show us that it's just an illusion, this whole notion of control. People do not, for the most part, spend their lives in abject terror, because for the most part, they think that they are in control, that they are the masters of their own destiny. But every now and then, something will happen. And that thin veneer that separates them from the cold reality of fear tears away. And suddenly they find themselves terrified to take a step. Their breath seizes in their chest. A cold sweat comes upon the brow. There's no longer any illusion. Fear has come, and the door, though barred against it, will not hold. Fear can come suddenly like a thunderclap out of a seemingly clear sky, all at once and out of nowhere. It can come like a gentle rain at the first, just a whisper, but ever increasingly soaking the ground until the river at full flood threatens to sweep everything away. It can come and go as quickly as it came, like a cannon shot, shaking the very foundations, and then all is at peace again. It can come and take hold with a grip like death, threatening to never let go of the heart. Fear is sadly a part of the human condition, of the fallen human condition. It was the first recorded sentence uttered by Adam after the fall. I was afraid. And it is also listed in Revelation 21, for there we read that the fearful and unbelieving will have their part in the lake that burns with fire. With death came pain and suffering and weeping. 
with death came fear. And we see the threat of death and the resulting fear that accompanies death woven throughout the scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We all have fears. They are as varied and as diverse as the people that experience them. Some fear one thing, but not another. Some have greater, some have lesser fears. But there is one thing common to every fear. Every fear that stems from self-preservation. I was thinking about this the other day, and I'm, I'm not sure that it can be categorically said that every fear at its heart is a fear of death, but I think it may be. Every fear is certainly a result of death. We may fear humiliation. We may fear a bee sting. We may fear persecution. We may fear our government. We may fear losing someone or something that we love. We may even fear losing someone's love. We may fear fear itself. But in all of this, there is an underlying drive to preserve our life, both as it pertains to the body and the soul. In other words, our health, both mental and physical. The underlying driving force, as I said, behind our fear is self. Preservation of self is the primary motive in all of our fears. This is not necessarily sinful, of course. I mean, we would be silly to say it's, it's, it's sinful to not be afraid of burning your hands off in the fire. But it can be. And many times, probably most often, our fears are centered on sinful self. We fear because we know that we are not sufficient in ourselves to meet whatever it is that is threatening to undo us. We fear when we realize that we have no strength, that we have no wisdom, that we can do nothing to protect ourselves from harm. And the psalmist here says, we will not fear. Those are wonderful words. But why will they not fear? Because God is their refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. What the psalmist does not say here speaks volumes. He does not say, I am my own refuge. I am strong. He does not say, my job is secure, so I will not fear. Nor does he say, I am rich. I have enough money to last me until I die. I will not fear. He does not say, I am strong and in good health, therefore I will not fear. He doesn't say... I have many friends, and they will help me. Therefore will I not fear. No. His only place of trust is the Lord, and it is because of this that he will not fear. He is my refuge. He is my strength. And because he is willing to help me, I will not fear. He is a refuge, a shelter. A place of safety from the elements and from danger. A place to run to and be safe. Literally, this word refuge comes from a verb that means to flee to. It is a place of safety from danger. Our God is a refuge. He is my strength. Albert Barnes is helpful here. He says, the word strength implies that God is the source of strength to those who are weak and defenseless. Or that we may rely on his strength as if it were our own. Or that we may feel as safe in his strength as though we had that strength ourselves. We may make it the basis of our confidence as truly as though the strength resided in our own arm. So why not fear? Because God is our strength and there is nothing too hard for him. The strength at our disposal is nothing less than omnipotence. This means that the strength of those that oppose can be but borrowed. It's limited. But our God is our strength. And that is primary. And that is limitless. But there's more to this. The psalmist goes on to say that he is a very present help in trouble. A shelter. 
though it be never so strong, does you no good if the door is bolted and barred against you. But his is a very present help. This can either be taken to mean that God is a very accessible help, one easy to be found, or that he has been found to be a help in the past. The word very or exceedingly, as the Hebrew would have it, is added to make it emphatic. God has always proved to be a help in trouble. And because of this, they would not fear, because he would be again. Whichever way you take it, this is a statement of God's faithfulness and willingness and readiness to be both a shelter and strength to his people in time of trouble. And because that is true, they will not fear. But that brings us to the last part of this stanza. We see why they do not fear, but what is it that they are not fearing? Pretty much the end of the world. Verse 2 says, Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Selah. Let that sink in for a minute. Think for a moment of these statements. We cannot pass by what we just read without some sense of amazement. This is trouble. The ground you're walking on should not move like that. Shouldn't. And water is terrifying when it is at that pitch. Even a quiet sea can be unnerving. (laughs) I remember vividly the first time I went out to sea in a small boat. You get to that point where the, the horizon is right there. And then you get beyond that. And it vanishes. It vanishes. And the only thing you can see all around you everywhere is just water. Water. It's a place where you really begin to start to feel vulnerable, small, even when the waters are calm. A feeling of lostness almost envelops your soul as you realize without help, you might not find your way back to solid ground. Adrift in a sea of sameness all around you. And then the deep beneath, that too is a thing of terror. To a small man floating upon it, it's an abyss. An unknown darkness with who knows what lurking there. When you can no longer see the bottom, when you can no longer see the shore... The vastness of the ocean just swallows you up. It's there that you truly feel your littleness and weakness. But this is not a calm sea that he's speaking about. Unless you've ever seen the waves rise up with anger like that and felt their power, you may not really understand the fearfulness of it. Of course, we've all seen video, right? But try to imagine standing on the deck of a boat. The waves are so big that when the little craft you are on goes down into the trough of the wave, you can see nothing but the towering, angry water all around you and above you. And the next moment, you're tossed to the crest of the wave and all is white, churning ocean. Then it is that real fear grips you. That is one of those occasions when that facade of control just melts away. When I was young, the USS Enterprise visited Anchorage. See, it's an aircraft carrier, nuclear, one of the older ones. But it was, we were told that the deck, the flight deck of that carrier sat 60 feet off the, the surface of the ocean. They were two days late coming in. And when we got on the boat and did the tour, the sailors told us, well, we knew the reason. That it was, there was a sea. There was a storm in the Bering Sea. They told us that the waves were crashing over the flight deck. There are stories of rogue waves reaching up to 100 feet in height. Storms at sea have caused many a seasoned sailor to cry out to the God of heaven with the same cry we hear in Matthew's gospel. Lord, save us, we perish. I don't know if any of you remember, but in 2004, Hurricane Ivan hit Pensacola. I was there. Well, we left. We came back. The I-10 bridge was destroyed by that hurricane. 
an interstate bridge, literally miles of concrete and steel. When that storm came into Pensacola Bay, it brought a storm surge of 10 feet, maybe more, and it had 52-foot waves on top of that. Those waves came up underneath that bridge and literally pulled the pilings up out of the mud, lifted the whole bridge up, and just dropped it again like a toy. To see it, it was just crumpled up concrete and steel. But the raging of the sea in this psalm is greater still. For here it is said that the sea roars and swells so much that it has caused the earth to give way as well. We're reading of a truly cataclysmic event. The earth and the very mountains themselves, the picture of stability and strength, they're being shaken and cast down. And if any of you have been through a real earthquake, one that is more than just a tremor like we get around here, a true shaking of the ground, you will understand that this too is a picture of complete helplessness. A terrifying picture, indeed. The ground giving way and falling into the raging sea. Nowhere to stand. No place of safety. This is a picture of things being just about as bad as they get in the natural world. I actually tried to think of it. I, I can't think of a worse picture. I really can't. But is the psalmist here really talking about natural calamity? I could certainly be included. But I do not think so, because he directly ties this imagery to the wicked in verse 6 in the second stanza. No, these are a picture of the raging of the wicked all around us, and it is not uncommon for the raging waters to be an emblem of this in Scripture. Isaiah likens the wicked to the tumultuous ocean when he says in chapter 17, Woe to the multitude of many people, which make a noise like the noise of the seas. And to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them. And they shall flee far off and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the whirlwind. And like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. And again in chapter 57 he says, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. So this is a picture, not just of a cataclysm of nature, but of nations. But still, we will not fear. For God is our refuge. If we listen, we can hear the voice above the roaring of the waves of our Father calling to the sheltered ones. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Be strong and of good courage. Fear not, for I or be not afraid, <laughs> nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. So those that put their trust in God as their strength and their shelter will not fear, though all the world rage against them. But you may be thinking now, but what does this have to do with me? The earth is not shaking. The mountains are not falling into the sea. In fact, my life is pretty calm right now. The last time I checked, the Assyrians were not at the gate, and we don't have anything like that planned for a while. My answer to you would be this. A strong house will withstand a hurricane, but it will also keep you warm in the winter and dry from the dew. If the psalmist were stopped short of total all-out calamity, we would not have had as strong a confidence. We would have been able to say, well, yes, he is a shelter when there's a thunderstorm like there was tonight. But what about the typhoon? Yes, I'm safe from the flood, but not the tsunami. But if he is a shelter when the entire world seems out of joint and just about to cave in, I need not fear lesser things either. God is a refuge in the worst persecution, but he is also in the least. 
So what about the fear of man? What about that secret fear of losing your job or your children or your spouse? Or maybe just the fear of looking foolish with your coworkers for sharing your love for Christ or that niggling fear of cancer. All those fears are included here. If the we will not fear includes the greatest, it also of necessity includes the least. But if the fearlessness of the psalmist is tied to his trust in God, what about those who trust in lesser things? A godly man once said, fear God, for not to fear him is to fear everything. If we make God our refuge and strength, we will not fear. But if we do not, we open ourselves up to fear everything else. And rightly so. For truly, we do not have strength to meet even the feeblest foe in and of ourselves. In fact, we have no strength at all apart from that which God has imparted to us. The proverb tells us, And the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge, and that the wicked flee when no man pursues. But the righteous are bold as a lion. The lives of David and Saul show us this in living color. For when David saw the Philistines standing and defying the armies of Israel, his response was one of fearless faith, while Saul was one of fear. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, Goliath, fled from him and were sore afraid. An entire army fleeing at the sight of one man. It was not in his strength nor his ability with the sling and the stone that David trusted. For he said to Saul, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And then on his way to meet Goliath, he said, thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. And of course we know that the Lord did deliver him that day. David did not trust in his own strength, and it was not a passing trust. For years later, many years later, when being pursued by Absalom, he would pen the following. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. And in Psalm 27 he said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, come upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. It was not a confidence in his own ability or his own strength, but in the God of heaven alone. And where Saul was the man that stood head and shoulders above his brethren. Where was he when the giant came? He was hiding behind a shepherd boy. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. And stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many. And in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel. Neither seek the Lord. Saul did not look to the Lord for his strength or his refuge, and we are repeatedly told that he feared. When he was revealed as the king God had chosen, he was found hiding among the baggage. We are told that he feared the people. We are told that he feared David, even when he had nothing to fear. He feared the Philistines. He feared many things because he had no refuge or strength but his own. If you trust in your own strength or that of another, you will fear. It's just that simple. Do you fear? Do you fear losing your friends? Do you fear the wrath of man? 
Do you hold back from doing what is right because you're fearing the consequences? Are you like the man hiding his talents until the master returns? Do you fear? God has not given us a spirit of fear. So if we are walking in fear, we cannot then at that moment be walking with God. So if fear is the mark of your life, ask yourself, where is my shelter? What is my strength in? But we need to move on. After a pause, the psalmist begins again in verse 4, and from the tumultuous sea, the scene rapidly changes, and we are met with a peacefully flowing river. Far from fear, there is gladness. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. Believer, your part is not in the raging of the sea, but in this peacefully flowing river. We are certainly not to fear the raging, but here we have more than a simply do not fear. We have a gladsome river to drink from, to dive into, and to be refreshed by. So let's take a brief look at this river. What is it? We're first met with it in the primeval temple of God, the first dwelling place of God with man, the Garden of Eden. We are told that a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. There was a river that flowed out of the rock in Exodus. The first psalm opens with this river, whereby the trees of God are planted, and the shepherd psalm leads us along in green pastures beside these still waters. The psalmist in Psalm 36 calls out to us, How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. The imagery of this divine river is found over and over again in Scripture, but perhaps the fullest unfolding of it is found in the, visit, in the vision of Ezekiel's temple in Ezekiel 47. There he says that he was brought again unto the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. He continues on to the outer gate, where the water continued to flow, and he tells us that when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The waters were to the ankles. And he measured again and brought me through the waters. The waters were to the knees. And again he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters were to the loins. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and the other. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country, and go down into the desert and into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed. And everything shall live, whither the river cometh. And just as the book of God begins and opens with this river, so it ends. For in Revelation 22 we read, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. So this river is at an emblem, at the very least, of the gospel grace of God. And it is perhaps even an emblem of the presence of God himself. For Jeremiah mentions it in reference to God the Father when he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns, 
broken cisterns that can hold no water. Zechariah mentions it in reference to the sun. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. In the Gospel of John, Jesus makes mention of it in reference to the Holy Spirit when he says, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. This river is life-giving. It is vast and clean and clear. The further into it we go, the deeper and more immense it becomes until it is a river that cannot be passed over. Everywhere it flows, life springs up. Everything it touches is strengthened and made whole and clean and clear. Even the salt sea is made fresh by its touch. The righteous are like trees whose roots draw up this living water until they too become conduits of that living water, and it flows out from them to those around them. Commenting on this river, Spurgeon had this to say. I like to hide behind Spurgeon. As they have the fruits of Eden to feed on, so shall they have this river of paradise to drink from. God's everlasting love bears to us a constant and ample comfort, of which grace makes us to drink by faith, and then our pleasure is of the richest kind. The Lord not only brings us to this river, but makes us drink. Herein we see the condescension of divine love. Heaven will, in the fullest sense, fulfill these words, but they who trust in the Lord enjoy the antipast even here. Happiness, the happiness given to the faithful, is that of God himself. So what is that river? I believe Spurgeon is right. It is God himself in their midst. It is the experience of himself in all his glorious attributes that makes glad the city of God. The further up we go, the deeper and wider it gets. Is it any wonder that the apostle cries out, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Is it any wonder that we have in scripture statements like this? My cup runneth over. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. It has been said that we have as much of God as we want. I believe this. But the question is, how much do we want? Ankle deep? Knee deep? Or do we want to swim? Oh, that we would know the fullness of that cannot be crossed over that we would be able to drink deeply and be satisfied in running over, that we might know Peter's joy unspeakable and full of glory. This river tells us one thing for certain. It tells us that when we can say with David, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. That the Lord will answer from heaven. I will help thee, fear not. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessings upon thy offspring and they shall spring up as among the grass as the willows by the water courses. The question is, can we say that with David? Can we say that we are hungering and thirsting for the living If we seek him, he will be found. But this river is not the only emblem of his nearness to his people in this section of the psalm. For not stopping at the river flowing through her, he goes on to say that God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. And then in verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. These statements seem at first glance to be a mere repetition of what was said in verse 1. But I want you to notice 
There is a reversal of emphasis as well as an intensification of language here. The emphasis has been flipped. In the first stanza, the tumult of the sea was primary. Here, it is the river of God, the voice of God, the city of God. There, the response of the people was negatively stated. We will not fear. Here, it is positively stated. Shall make glad. In verse 1, we heard that God was our refuge or shelter. But here, it is a different word for refuge that literally means a cliff or a high tower. The ESV rightly has it translated, a fortress. A fortress. In verse 1, we heard that Elohim, the the ordinary word for God, was a very present help, or was a very accessible help, one easy to be found. Here, it is no more just God, Elohim, but it is the Lord, Jehovah, the covenant God of Israel. And he's not only near at hand to help, but he is in the very midst of her. The phrase, he shall help her, literally means to surround her. And the right early literally means again, as the ESV has it, at the turning of the dawn. In verse 1, the earth is being moved under their feet. Here, it says, they shall not be moved. Here, it says, the nations shall be the trembling, moving, shaking ones not the city. So what was encouraging in verse 1 is magnified and expanded here. That which made the people of God able to face the raging of the wicked there without fear fills their hearts with gladness here. The raging of the, the heathen there was described in terrible language and took up two full verses. Here it is just stated matter-of-factly with only a half of a sentence and it is dismissed by a mere word. From, God, from heaven. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The city far from fear now is actually glad. Glad because God is in the midst of her and she is safe. Safe because that in the face of this tumult of the heathen raging and the people imagining vain things, God sits in the heavens and laughs. For he says to the raging ones, Fear ye not me, saith the Lord. Will ye not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass? And though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail, though they roar, yet can they not pass over it. He says to them, I have set my king upon my holy hill, and his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. So rage as they will, it is nothing to him. For the nations are as the dust of the balance before him. He utters his voice. That is all. He says, peace, be still. And the waters cease to rage. The earth melts at the sound of his rebuke. In stanza one, the kingdoms continue to rage. But here, Jehovah speaks and the earth melts. All is common. All creation must bow to the voice of the creator. He alone is sovereign. And it is he, not they, that is strong. All the tumult and commotion, all that the heathen can do to shake the earth and rage like the sea, is but an illusion. For they have no strength but that which is borrowed from his hand. It is truly the Lord alone that can shake And none can say cease. It is his voice alone that truly has the power of many waters. For we read in Jeremiah, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom and has stretched out the heavens by his discretion. When he uttered his voice, There is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain, and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasuries. Micah adds, For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft. 
as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. Our God is sovereign. As we move on to verse 7 and the end of this stanza, you can almost hear the psalmist now shouting, The Lord of hosts is with us. All these that have raged and come against us are silenced. Jehovah, the Lord of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our strong tower and our fortress, and we are filled with gladness. We are as unshakable as the foundation upon which we stand. For if God be for us, who can be against us? We can say with the Apostle Paul, in gladness and without fear, that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For we are persuaded that nothing in all of creation is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. We can say that the joy of the Lord is our strength and rest in that truth even if the ground seems to be giving away. And that brings us to the stillness of the last stanza. Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he has made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Our view once again changes abruptly. And we are taken, as it were, to a high mountain to view God's dealings with his enemies throughout the history of the world. As we look, we can see the chariots of Pharaoh. I almost said, I don't know what I almost said. Chariots of Pharaoh lie still and unmoving in the depths of the sea. We can stand beside Hezekiah Hezekiah and see the 185,000 Assyrians slain by the angel of the Lord. We can lift up our eyes with Mordecai and see Haman hanging from the gallows. To me, there is no better argument or encouragement to prayer, no stronger motive for faith than to behold the works of the Lord Jehovah, the covenant God of his people. For he has done wonderfully. And here we are called up and out of the fray to a quiet place to contemplate just what God has done. To look upon the desolations that he has wrought upon his enemies to remember the mighty acts of God and to rehearse them. The end in view in this beholding, I believe, is worship. For what other response could a child of God have in beholding his wonderful works? Fear has been banished. Joy has taken hold. God has delivered, and here we behold all that God has done. What other response could there be? Can we not sing with David, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and all thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. So as we look, we can ask, where are the mighty Assyrians now? Where is Babylon? Or Nero's Rome? Or the Spanish ships of the Armada? Where are the mighty opposers of God's people from ages past? Where are the philosophers and the atheists? They're gone. But have they overcome this city? Can they? For God is in her midst, and he is her strength, and no weapon formed against her shall prosper. But more than just these mighty acts of history, we can look over the course of our own lives and see the wandering one brought home, the enemy in our workplace silenced, the marriage restored. If we've been redeemed, we too have a story of grace to tell. But there is something exceedingly wonderful about this last stanza. I don't want to pass over it. For as we're bid, gaze on this mighty work of God to deal with his enemies and overcome them. God himself breaks in. And as we look in wonder over the mighty acts of God, 
It is no longer the psalmist's voice that we hear, but the very voice of God. And he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. And I think our hearts would answer back with the psalmist. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. In closing, I just want to wrap up the threads of the psalm and leave you with a few things to ponder. In verses 1 through 3, we saw that God's people are fearless. In verses 4 through 7, we saw that they were joyful. In verses 8 through 11, we saw that they were at peace. So the next time fear begins to steal into your soul, realize that it is so because God is not at that moment your refuge and your strength. You are either trusting in something less than omnipotence or you are not walking in the Father's love and the doors of that shelter are barred and bolted to you. The word says that perfect love casts out fear. Keep yourselves, my brethren, in the love of God and you will not fear. The next time you find yourself without joy, realize that it could be that you are not drinking of the water of life but maybe you've hewn out for yourselves broken cisterns. The word says that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Perhaps you are looking for joy in the wrong place. And are you restless? Do you have no peace? It may be because you are acting like you are the sovereign. You're trusting in yourself. If you look for peace in yourself and in your mighty acts of devotion, it will fail you. Do you see what desolations he has wrought in the earth? Look away from yourself and behold the works of the Lord. For there is one that we have not yet mentioned. The heavens declare the glory of God. The psalmist tells us this was mere finger work. The heavens declare the glory of God. Finger work. The destruction of Sennacherib and his mighty host that I referred to earlier was the work of an angel. All the raging of the mighty sea was hushed by just a few words from the lips of our Savior. But there was a time, Isaiah tells us, when God made bare his his mighty right arm. The crosswork of Christ was the greatest of his mighty acts. For in it he spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So look there and keep looking until your restless soul is at peace, until his joy wells up in your heart, and until fear is banished from your soul. Look And remember what great things God has done for you. Look there and see the bloody sweat. Look and see him hanging before the wicked, surrounded by the bulls of Bashan. Look and see his life's blood being poured out. Look and see the angry whip of the Roman soldier. Look and see the awful raging multitude of fallen men and angels crying out for his blood. Look. And behold the awful darkness as the Father turns away his face. Hear the awful silence and be still. Behold, the Lamb of God is slain for you. Hear the triumphant cry, it is finished. And see the empty tomb. Watch as he leads captivity captive and ascends into heaven where he is seated now until all his enemies be made his footstool. Look and look and look, for he is the captain of your salvation, the ruler of the waves, the king of glory. He is our refuge and strength. Behold what desolation he has brought upon the kingdom of darkness. 
He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. We. We were those raging ones once. And those were our weapons. But he has overcome them all and made peace. So maybe if you lack peace tonight, it is because you have forgotten this. Whatever it is that is marring your rest, bring it to his cross and behold what he has done. If he has given us his son, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? But perhaps you do not have peace tonight because you have not yet made peace with him. You still have the battlements of your heart arrayed against him. To you, he says, fury is not in me. Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them all together. Or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me. And he shall make peace with me. Do not be deceived. He will be exalted in the earth. He will be exalted in your life. You are no match for the Almighty. The choice is yours. Set your briars and thorns against him. Him that is the consuming fire. Or lay down your weapons and make peace. Take hold of his strength, for you have none, and you shall make peace with him. For he says, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they turn and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will ye die? I want to end tonight with one more quote from an old divine. He said this. There are depths in the ocean, I am told, which no tempest ever stirs. They are beyond the reach of all storms which sweep and agitate the surface of the sea. And there are heights in the blue sky above to which no cloud ever ascends, where no tempest ever rages, where all is perpetual sunshine. And nothing exists to disturb the deep serene. Each of these is an emblem of the soul which Jesus visits, to whom he speaks peace, whose fear he dispels, and whose lamp of hope he trims. May it ever be so with us.